Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. This week, Sagar and I went to Capitol Hill where we interviewed Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. So we take the episode actually in the Senate recording studio. We don't have a YouTube video this week. You can't compare all of our sock game, but I can assure you the senator was dressed very nicely. And whether you agree with the senator or not, he's definitely been the person whose name has come up most on this show. I think pretty much every other episode has included a Senator Josh Hawley reference, so it was great to sit down with him. Well, it's funny. People had remarked to us about that before, and there's a reason for that, because Josh Hawley really is the person who's focusing on China, around changing the nature of American foreign policy. But also, in terms of economics, it's it's a focus on growth and about prosperity, but in what he calls the great American middle, not on the coast. And then he's also really been a leader on the need to reckon with technological changes, introduced bill after bill on social media, on different tech companies. And he's, he's been one of Silicon Valley's biggest opponents in the United States Congress. And so it was a really great opportunity to have a discussion with him. Yeah, and Sagar, that's a great point about the whole reorienting growth around the rest of the country, not just on the coast. Recently, he actually unveiled legislation that would relocate 10 different departments of the federal government to different states, sort of in the Midwest and then in the reindustrializing parts of the country. So with all that, let's dive in. Senator Hawley, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. This podcast is all about how post-2016 American politics is changing. People are beginning to reevaluate very long-held political assumptions. People are calling it a realignment, including us. So as we see it, the realignment is most actively around issues that about ideal what an ideal economic philosophy is going to look like, the role of technology in our daily lives, and then rising great power competition with China. So – if you do buy that there's a realignment, because we had J.D. Vance on, he said there is one. George Will said there is not one. Um, so if that's just sort of show you the direction of our politics. If you do think there is one, how did this realignment come to be post-2016? Um, and what role do you conceive of yourself playing in it? Well, I, I think, first of all, that what we're seeing are, are voters – the American people who for quite a long time now have been trying to get the attention of Washington, D.C. And, and what you might broadly call the leadership class uh, without much success. And I think in 2016, you finally saw on both sides, by the way, I mean, you think of Bernie Sanders, I mean, would have won uh, the Democratic uh, uh, nomination um, were it not uh, for those uh, superdelegates, right? I mean, so you think about, and then of course, Donald Trump wins, the Republican nomination wins the presidency. So on both sides in 2016, you finally see voters saying that the status quo in both parties, in terms of the orthodoxy in both parties, is not acceptable to them. And that's because it doesn't, it no longer reflects, and we could just zero in on Republican orthodoxy, no longer reflects voters' concerns, and in particular, middle-class, working-class Americans, their concerns, their lives, their families. Republican orthodoxy had come to be pretty much totally out of touch with it. So where exactly did it go wrong, right? Was it the Reagan revolution of 1980s? I mean, we, we look at them and say, no, actually, some of that was needed, that, that type of orthodoxy. Was it 1991, the peace dividend? Where did conservative orthodoxy take the wrong turn and basically misalign with its voters and what they actually wanted? I think it's more a matter of a failure to, to keep up. I mean, times change, right? Mm -hmm. I think the Reagan revolution was hugely successful. I mean, the Reagan presidency, hugely successful. One of the things that made Reagan so successful was he responded to the needs 
of his day. I mean, we've got to remember in 1980, think how the Republican establishment treated Ronald Reagan. I mean, they thought he was was ridiculous. They thought he was wrong on defense. They thought he was wrong on economics. They mocked him. They thought, you know, he was an idiot. What was it? A B-movie actor? You know, Republicans said these things. And, uh, you know, look, I mean, he, he, there was a realignment then. So, but that was, that was almost four decades ago. I mean, that's a long time ago now. (laughs) Yeah. None of us were alive, (laughs) you know? Well, I I was born on December 31st, 1979. So I was, you know, barely... (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's 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 really times have changed. And I think that, you know, you see if if you if I have to give you a sense of of the kind of vision that I think voters um, have rejected President Bush, the first President Bush, who I think is a a fine man and did a lot of good. But the first President Bush gave a speech to Congress in 1990 where he talked about a new world order. And he was saying in the situation, in the context with Iraq, but you know, he, he talked broadly about a new global liberal order that, of course, America would lead, but it would involve making America making the world much more like America and the rest of the world kind of blending in with America, the two sort of coming together. And there wouldn't be uh, the need for hard borders any longer, and we'd have free trade, and we'd have uh, uh, greater multinational corpor- uh, cooperation, and we'd have these multinational corporations that could do business in any country, and it would be a whole new era. Well, as it turns out, that first of all, China and Russia didn't get the memo on that. Secondly, as it turns out, that new world order wasn't so good for American workers. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, it didn't really protect American middle class values. As it turned out, it undermined the middle class way of life. And I think by 2016, you have voters saying again in both parties, but I know our own party, my own party best, they said that that's not what we signed up for. Right. And all of that talk just doesn't do anything for it. It has no bearing on my actual life. Mm -hmm. And what's great is that you mentioned the China issue. You recently returned from Hong Kong. And I think that the reason why the Hong Kong issue has been so resonant is it's about more than just Hong Kong. This isn't just about protest. Um, And if we're looking at the New World Order speech as sort of a demarcation point in history, you sort of see with China, we're going to let them into this system by having free trade. They're sort of, will democratize. All that goes wrong. So how do you conceive of our current relationship with China? Well, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it has been, look, we've had our head in the sand for too long, and you can go back and look at when we granted them permanent normal trade status back in the late 1990s when we admitted them to the WTO in 2001. Those things turn out to be mistakes, I think, almost certainly. And, uh, you know, we were told by the experts at the time that doing these things would, would democratize China, right? It would bring them into the, quote, international community, end quote. Uh, which, I mean, certainly brought them, gave them international legitimacy. What happened was, is they, you know, stole our jobs, or they stole our technology, they hollowed out whole industries. While our our leadership elites were happy to watch it go and just say, well, you know, it'll 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 be good for America in the end. Well, no. In fact, China has built its military on the backs of Missouri and America's working class, and now we're reckoning with that. So uh, we have got to face up to the fact that China is a competitor, that China is the greatest security threat of the 21st century, as well as, of course, as an economic threat, as we've known for some time, and uh, we're going to have to rebalance. So you've been outspoken about the NBA's response to this China issue in particular, and I, I mean, what deeper story does it tell about American policy? Because to me, it's about what you identified in that post-1991, that that speech, which was, we're going to have free trade, we're going to export American democracy and import goods, everybody will have cheaper stuff and it'll be great. Instead, what seems to have happened is that we have begun importing Chinese autocracy. 
instead of exporting American democracy. So, but what should the policy response to this situation be? What, what was yeah. the what was it the creators of South Park said? You know, we welcome the Chinese censors into yeah. our homes and into our hearts. Yes, yeah. you know, this is the, this is the policy of the MBA, and the recommendation of much of corporate America. In fact, I mean, it, it is. I think, frankly. Um, infuriating to watch these corporate executives and the heads of these multinational corporations like Apple, and you know the NBA fits in this category. But you, th- you think of, of of these folks who have sent our jobs overseas. In the case of the corporate execs and the multinational corporations, they were happy to go over to China and for cheap labor and to make a quick buck. And now to have them say, oh, well, we can't do anything that offends Beijing. I mean, it makes you say, well, wait a minute. I mean, what country do you – to whom are you loyal here ultimately? I thought you were an American company. And mm-hmm. sure, you're, they can do business in China if they want to. But I think they've got to be willing to maintain some basic independence. And I think it gets back to for a, a reckoning. I mean, this is a time for choosing, I think. And for many of these multinational corporations, it's a time for choosing. Are you going to re- continue to be an American company in any relevant, meaningful sense at all? Which means, are you at least going to maintain your independence from the government of Beijing? And when they tell you, you can't say this, you have to do that, or you, you can't talk about democracy, you can't talk about freedom of worship, you know, these companies need to tell Beijing, take a hike. I mean, we're, we're American companies. And uh, we'll do business in your market, but you can't tell us what to do. They also need to say no to these forced technology transfer agreements. You know, when the when the Beijing government comes and says, you can do business in this country if you allow Communist Party spies, basically, on your board and your facilities, if you agree to transfer technology to us, the answer needs to be no, not happening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if we need to help these companies recover their independence by giving them some uh, incentives in the law when it comes to these forced technology transfer agreements, for instance, then maybe we should. I think if there's a single part of this episode, I think that you could not imagine a sitting U.S. senator on the right giving in 2012 would be that section. You're skeptical of corporations. You're not dismissive, but you're not talking about the wonders of free trade and how capitalism brought all these people out of poverty. You're actually talking about these very, very clear negative externalities. When do you think the sort of discourse on this started to change so much. I don't imagine you would have talked about this in 2012. Well, I mean, I think for voters, it happened a long time ago. And you can go back and look at public opinion polls back into the late 80s, into the 90s. And you ask you ask voters, you know, broad-based questions about uh, do you support trade even if it means costing American jobs? You know, free trade, quote-unquote, even if it means costing American jobs. Do you support greater global integration? Do you support subordinating American decision-making making to groups like the United Nations? You'll see that majorities of voters, not just Republican voters, all voters, have been answering those questions in the negative for decades. Decades. So there's been this growing chasm between the leadership elite of both parties and actual voters. And I just think by the time you got to the, the middle of this uh, of this decade, by 2015, 2016, voters are finally just saying, listen, I mean, we've had enough. We've been trying to tell you this for years. And uh, they finally got a candidate, I think, in President Trump, who articulated some of the positions they actually held. And they're like, yes, that's what we're talking about. That that right there. What he's saying is what we mean. And again, on the left, you see it with Bernie Sanders, who, who you know, his positions are dissimilar in many ways, but some of the same sort of skepticism about this neoliberal orthodoxy you hear from him, too. So what's the source of that gap, then? Because if you're talking about both parties are doing it, that suggests there's a structural reason, right? This isn't just sort of a D.C. think tank on the right declaring 
doing something if both parties are doing it something's going on what do you think is going on i think it's it is that the leadership class of, of both parties and in the country generally tends to be pretty homogeneous and they, they tend to be drawn from a, a pretty small group of people they tend to be highly educated folks who went to a fairly narrow band of, of colleges and graduate schools and they tend to share and uh, a similar outlook uh, on life they also tend to be the winners from this 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 global integration you know so the new george bush's new world order like the people who've been in charge of the parties who are who who uh, run the media uh, who hold the commanding heights in our culture they win from that agreement they're doing great they are the wealthy in our society they are the ones who are uh, globally integrated and um and global facing and uh, you know so to them they think this is wonderful why does anybody disagree with this and you know they also tend to be skeptical of places like Missouri and of things like home and community. I mean, they, they say that they value those things, but, you know, you listen to somebody, like in my state, for instance, and they and, and they and somebody says, um, you know, I, I'm not going to move from the small town, even though I'm having trouble finding a job, because my family's here and because this is where we've lived for generations and this is where my friends are and I want to make a life here. I think you, a lot of D.C. elites, both parties, listen to that and they're like, that's crazy. You're like, wait, okay. you don't want to live in Chelsea? Exactly. Yeah. It's nice even relate it's to nice. that. <laughs> No, I mean, so you've been particularly outspoken, I think, and and really the face of this new conservative movement, arguing we got to reorient our economic policy towards what you call the great American middle. Now, the counter conservative orthodoxy here, of course, is that what's great for business is what's great for workers. Why are they wrong? Well, I mean, long gone are the days when um, we could count on American, you know, business to to look out for the needs of American workers and families. I mean, that doesn't happen, and and you can see that in the, with the examples of all of these businesses saying that they're not American companies. I mean, you have these businesses who are who who for years now have said, well, you know, we're based in the United States, but we're not actually an American company. We're right. a global company, and you know what has driven profits for some of our biggest multinational corporations? It's been labor arbitrage which is just a fancy way of saying moving jobs overseas where it's cheaper. It's been tax arbitrage, which just means moving your profits out of this country so you don't have to pay any taxes. It's been regulatory arbitrage. So, you know, I, I, I think that we have here, at, at the same time that our economy has becoming been more concentrated, we have bigger and bigger corporations that control more and more of our key sectors. Those same corporations see themselves as less and less American, and frankly, they're less committed to American workers and American communities. And so that's turned out to be a problem, which is one of the reasons why we need to restore good, healthy, robust competition in this country that's going to push up wages, that's going to bring jobs back uh, to the middle parts of this country, and most importantly, to the middle and working class in this country. So if there's one group that's particularly rankled by you, it's libertarians. So you told me in a previous interview that you thought libertarian was all about being skeptical of concentrated power. Response to that, of course, is that you know corporate concentrated power can't like throw you in jail and, and point a gun at you, legally at least. So why should conservatives be be skeptical of concentrated corporate power? Well, because look, I mean, concentrated corporate power, it, it can stifle innovation, it can stifle competition. I mean, these are things that, that traditionally, those of us who believe in free markets, when we talk about a free market, a, mar- a free market is one where you can enter it, where there are new ideas. And also, by the way, where people can start a, f- a small family business, you shouldn't have to be gigantic in order to succeed in this country. I mean, most people don't want to start a tech company. 
they maybe want to work in their family's business, which may be just some corner shop in a small town like the one I grew up in, but they want to be able to make a living there and then maybe give that to their kids or give their kids an option to do that. I mean, th- that is, or the farm, you know, I mean, they want, they want, they have the family farm, they grew up farming, they want to keep farming, give their kids a chance to do it. So we talk about the free market. I mean, it's a market that's healthy enough to support small family concerns that allows for new ideas, that allows for healthy competition and promotes innovation. And the problem with corporate concentration is it tends to kill all of that. Mm. And the worst thing about corporate concentration is it inevitably leads to a partnership with big government. Big Mm. business and big government always get together, always. And that is exactly what has happened now with the tech sector, for instance, and arguably many other sectors where you have this alliance between big government and uh, big business. And uh, it's what some people call crony capitalism. Whatever you call it, it's a problem, and it's something we need to address. And I think something listeners might not know is you've actually studied deeply the sort of uh, Theodore Roosevelt or in a Woodrow Wilson era, and you're using phrases like concentration, corporate power, which were very much in the vogue back then. What lessons can we take from that era and how we sort of got through that transition at that transitionary time? You know, Theodore Roosevelt said something that I've always that I've always thought was really. Uh, striking. And, and he said that I am for business. But he said, now, and these are his words, speaking in the, you know, the language of his time. He said, but I'm for manhood first, and I'm for business as an adjunct to manhood. What he meant by that was he's for independent, we would say, for independence and for democracy. And, and he, he saw that business interests uh, need to be treated like any other interest. At the end of the day, you've got to do what's best for the American people as citizens, as producers, uh, you've got to do what actually helps working families, uh, what keeps competition healthy. So you, you can't allow yourself to become too tied to any particular set of interests. And I, I think one of the things that Republicans need to recover today is a, a defense of an open free market, of a fair, healthy, competing market, and the link between that and democratic citizenship. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, at the end of the day, we are trying to support and sustain here a great democracy. We're not trying to make a select group of people rich. They've already done that. You know, I mean, the tech billionaires are already billionaires. They don't need any more help from government. I'm not interested in trying to help them further. I'm interested in trying to sustain the great middle of this country that makes our democracy run. And that's the most important challenge of this day. So there's one question that we absolutely have to get you on the record on. There's been a bitter debate that has erupted on Twitter, of all places, whether trade or automation is most responsible for the loss of American manufacturing jobs. In my view, the automation obsessives want to push that narrative because it's a techno-fatalism to the inevitable, that we have to pass a universal basic income in order to in order to grapple with and this. quickly what is, it also yeah. it's exculpatory it right. suggests that we because you're t- if you're talking about economically it's like it wasn't my fault why i was getting rich it, this it's was gonna happen anyways yes. yeah so where do you fall on that question and what should we do about it yeah it's like the, <laughs> it's like an economic predestination right well yes, it was exactly. it's gonna happen i mean there's yeah. just nothing we can do just yeah. write a book that's a good title <laughs> i just i think at the end of the day the the we, we are where we are because of choices that policymakers have made and the choice to enter into a trade and monetary regime over a period of time, and in a larger economic regime over a period of time, that has hollowed out entire industries, entire supply chains. Do you know, the thing is, in this country, not only do we not make very much stuff anymore, we don't even make the machines that make the stuff. I mean, it's amazing. Take, take precision tooling, for example. Precision, Advanced precision tooling invented in this country 
not only are there not very many folks any longer in the country with the skills to actually do precision machine tooling, but the, the, the machines themselves, we don't make those anymore. So the entire supply chain up and down has gone overseas. Again, a lot of it to China, but other places as well. I mean, this and this is a result of policies over some decades now. But it, it, the automation thing, I mean, look, I, I'm not sanguine about automation. I think that always shouldn't be concerned at all. But to suggest that, you know, just in the last few years, that's what has just popped up and, and there's really nothing we could do about it, I, I think is a way of, of excusing policymakers who have made very questionable choices. And now it's time to grapple with well, those. Well, this is what you said. You said it's a time to choose. And that's what the implication of choice. And that seems to be something that can rankle some people in conservative orthodoxy, which is the idea idea that these things and these forces were the results of deliberate policy choices made over many decades. So what are the choices, though, in Congress that we should make, particularly facing automation? Say we do change our trade policy, et cetera. The self-driving car question, for example. Should we ban it? Should we allow it? I mean, how do, how do, how do we begin to think about these things that could have mass transformational change in our society? Well, I think we'll have to take each one as it comes. I think that the broader questions that we need to ask are, how are we going to get workers in this country, particularly those who don't have four-year college degrees? Degrees. How are we going to make sure that they have access to good jobs that they can support a family on? Because here, I think, is the most important thing that Washington needs to realize. If we do not have a country or an economy where somebody without a college degree can get a good job, our democracy as we know it is not going to go on. Only 27% of Americans graduate with four-year college degrees. The large majority do not, and they're not going to. And guess what? They shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to take on masses of student debt to go to a college to get a degree they don't want. I'm all for going to college, but most people don't. And if we cannot in this country provide jobs in healthy communities for the majority of our people, we have a big, big problem. So that issue, I mean, we need to get some agreement in D.C. just on that, that is a huge issue. And and I still am afraid to say here, too many people who just, when you talk like this, they just look at you blankly and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it, it you know, what what's the problem? I don't think there's a problem. There's a huge problem and it's staring us in the face. I think part of, in your critiques of the technology industry, you sort of talk about how we were promised the moon and instead we got social media addiction. And I think what people are sort of wondering though is, so fair, we could critique Facebook and Twitter, but... Moving forward, we actually do need a vibrant technology sector. So how do you think that industry in of itself, from the purely private sector should conceive of itself, whether that's the investors, the founders of tech companies, how should they think of what they're doing? Yeah, we need a more vibrant tech sector, I would say. And we need technology and innovation in the world of things, not just in the world of bits and bytes. Take advanced manufacturing, for instance. We need to be able to engage in advanced manufacturing in this country. Call it high-tech manufacturing, if you like. But we've got to be able to build the machines of the future that are going to help our workers then build high-tech stuff. We need to be making that in the United States. You know, recently I introduced some legislation that would put various technologies on an export control list to China so that our companies can't just give away trade secrets to China. And I remember one financial reporter saying to me, like, oh, my gosh, well, well, what would this mean? Like, for Apple, I mean, would they have to make the iPhone in America? I mean, they just couldn't possibly do that. And I was like, why not? I mean, shouldn't that be the goal? And he just looked at me and said, well, we can't make that stuff in this country. Well, sure, we can make that stuff in this country. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. So we, we need our tech sector 
to be focused on innovations that actually drive worker productivity, that that uh, provide jobs to our broad middle class, and push forward uh, the 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 frontier of our knowledge, you know, in physics, in biomedicals, um, in in the world again of real things, and not just the world of bits and bytes. So look, I, I get that we've been great innovators at software. That's fi- that's fine, you know, that's fine. Now social media, you know, again, I question whether <laughs> much value is added there for anybody, but uh, we we've got we cannot have a tech sector where the only innovation we're doing is this narrow innovation in some software and then anything else, anything in the real tangible world, we might think it up, but it is built and implemented and made somewhere else. That's a bad bargain for an America. And at the end of the day, it will mean that we don't innovate here either, because ultimately you got to build the stuff to innovate with the stuff, right? And so the, the longer our supply chains are divorced such that everything is being made overseas, pretty soon our engineers, we're just not going to have engineers who want to innovate in those areas because they're not exposed to the supply chains that actually create the problems you need to then innovate. So to get back to my point about choice, which is, you know, Silicon Valley's their golden era really was kind of a generic public-private partnership. It was largely decentralized. As a legislator, you talked just now about the export control. And soccer means like the 60s or 70s, 70s, Silicon Valley. The development of the microchip, the Silicon Valley, the original Silicon Valley, where the name comes from. How do we get back to that? So is it is it just by using you know the Export Control Act to make sure that these things don't get made in China? Is it about pouring research dollars into different industries? What what does a actual productive tech sector look like bolstered by the U.S. government? Well, it probably means that, for one thing, the the significant amount of research money that the U.S. government commits to various things, that we're actually optimizing that so that we are, we are investing in, for instance, the kind of uh, technologies for advanced manufacturing that we're going to need in order to both create the jobs of this century and also to um, to create the technologies that are going to win the century. So I think that you know we already spend prodigious amounts of of money on tax money on uh, research, research development. Some of it in public private partnerships. Now, um, I think we need to be directing that in ways. Uh, into fields, you know, not not pinpricking particular industries, but into fields like advanced manufacturing, for example, that we know are absolutely critical to our economic development and to our national security. Hmm. So do you think what's working well in our economy? Because I feel like we're getting a little pessimistic yeah. <laughs> during this episode. What, what, what do you think is like working well? Because obviously economic growth is strong, like we're, we're not in a recession. Like what, what, what do you think the sort of good part of the story is? Well, it's been great to see in the, in the last couple of years, we've seen real wage growth finally, and particularly fastest uh, for people um, who are at the bottom of the wage distribution. So, so f- the folks who, who um, don't have that four-year college degree and um, who are working for uh, something below the median wage, they've seen their wages grow faster than anybody else. That's, that's really good. Um, that's really, really good. And something we haven't talked about yet is immigration, but immigration plays a role in this. One of the reasons that median wages and below have been flat is because we have had uh, a surplus of unskilled labor. Uh, that has, because of our immigration policies, the number of people we admit who do not have skills have competed um, with uh, American workers. So, you know, I think we've we, part of the lesson that we need to take from this is is that when the job market gets tight, when American companies really, really need to get laborers, guess what? They will hire. Uh, low and unskilled workers, and they'll they'll train them, and that's a good thing, and that's beginning to that demand is beginning to push up wages, so that's really good, and it gets us to one of the reasons that on immigration policy, uh, we need to rebalance our immigration policy toward 
a merit-based, skills-based immigration policy that will help bring in folks to the country who want to be here, number one, who want to be part of our society, who want to help create new jobs, but who will quit competing with the people, the Americans, who uh, who are having the hardest time finding jobs already. And I think you actually spoke to one of the more toxic myths I remember from sort of the aughts pre-2016 era, which is the only reason why Americans are lazy, they don't want to work hard, like we, you know, th- th- this this thing that totally ignores the structural realities, talk about choice that are actually going on here. So that that's just, another, I was thinking, quite like, I remember hearing that, and I think that undergirds so much of our policy. You know, it's so offensive to, to I mean, all Americans, but, you know, especially folks who go out and, and, and work for a living, pick up a shovel. Um, and, you know, put on overalls and work. I mean, to, to be told that, well, the only reason you can't get a job or get a better job or that your wages and hires is because basically you're lazy and stupid. I mean, give me a break. I mean, th- and that kind of attitude, by the way, is is still rampant in this town. I mean, I've been surprised. I've only been here for nine months. I've been surprised at just how uh, upfront, I mean, many folks, press, even policymakers are in this town. When you really get them to talk, they're like, "Yeah, well, we all know that American workers are basically dumb, you know, and that they they can't do this stuff, and, and that's like, why we don't what? have these jobs." <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I, and then they all they say things like, "Well, you know, I know you're from Missouri, but like, you don't really want to live there, right?" I'm like, "No, actually, I'm I'm proud to be there. Like, I, I I chose to live there. We chose to to raise a family there. I mean, you know, that that's that is what." Um, that's the truth. That's what we're proud of. And, and that's most Americans, by the way. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back a bit to, to social media you talked about there. You, you've been an outspoken critic of Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. He actually just, you, you told him if he was serious about privacy, he's got to sell WhatsApp and he's got to sell Instagram. Obviously, he refused to do so. But, you surprise, know, in, in, yeah, in, in response <laughs> to that criticism, though, and also from the left, he just gave a speech talking about basically making Facebook an icon of free speech in America and in part as part of the global values. Now, he he did that largely in response, I think, to the left's criticism that he was not fact-checking political ads. Now, it's it's a quandary because isn't that actually something that we want from Facebook? We don't necessarily want Facebook using their fact-checking standards on political ads. At the same time, I know you're highly skeptical of what he was saying. Yeah, my, my view is is that I'll believe that Facebook is serious about privacy when they actually start protecting privacy. And I'll believe they're serious about free speech when they actually start protecting free speech. You know, I hear all this big talk from Zuckerberg now about China mm-hmm. and how Facebook is going to be like the national champion versus the Chinese companies. The truth is Facebook desperately tried to get into China. This has been well documented. I mean, the New York Times of all publications has done lengthy and very good reporting on this. And we know that they even set up a, a, a platform that would have complied with the censorship requirements of Beijing. And they were happy to do it. And by the way, I asked Zuckerberg about this. I, sa- I said, because he tried this national champion line out on me when we sat down together. And I said, but wait a minute, you were very willing to censor in order to get into China. And his response is, well, yeah, but we always comply with local laws. And then he said, you know, kind of like in Germany, like in Germany, you can't deny the Holocaust. And I said, hold on, you're (laughs) saying that not talking about Tiananmen Square or the Uyghurs is like not denying the Holocaust? Those are equivalent? And he just sort of looks at me blankly. He's like, well, we just always comply with local laws. Here's my point. Facebook has rebranded more times than a fast food chain. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, I have no idea what their core brand is. Apparently, they don't either. And I will believe that this free expression thing is real when I see evidence that it's more than branding. Well, here's the perfect example of the dynamics we're talking about. What do you think about TikTok though? Which is like the young. It's the, it's the, it's basically. I don't use it. Um, I'm too old. But it's, <laughs> it's basically all the tweens are using it. It's a, uh, it's, it's music. It's lip syncing. It's sort of stuff like that. It's a Chinese app. 
that is deeply connected to the Chinese Communist Party, and it's a Facebook competitor. So there is this awkward dynamic with an application like that. Should TikTok be allowed in the United States? Well, that's a good question. I mean, and and, uh, I think we're going to have to ask some hard questions about companies that we know are Chinese government owned or affiliated or controlled, which is many of them and their access to sensitive information, for instance, in the United States, their protection of Americans' data. For that for that matter, we need to be asking about American companies who do business in China and store data in China. Are they protecting um, Americans' data and security? But let me just say more broadly, this this gets back to the reason why, I mean, yeah, we do need American competitors a- a- across these. And, and yes, I mean, social media, sure. But, but more importantly, I mean, the things that actually drive our economy. Again, like manufacturing. Take 5G, for instance. Mm-hmm. Why are we in this situation with, with Huawei, the Chinese company that, that all the Europeans want to do business with and we're trying to dissuade them because it's not safe? It's Partly it's because in this country we don't make any of the components to the 5G network anymore. It's amazing. We don't make them here. This is a huge, huge problem. So well, this is why we need a competitive, innovative tech space, and we need to do more to introduce healthy competition. So final question for you, sir. A lot of people, including many of your colleagues, I think, hope that when Trump is gone, American politics will basically just go back to exactly the way it is. Your election, your governance, a lot of this entire discussion really seems to indicate that's not going to be the case. Why do you, What is it going to look like, and why do you think that is? Well, uh, it's the American people, as I say, I think for some time now, uh, have been saying that their concerns are the loss of middle class and working class jobs, the loss of middle class, working class life, communities, neighborhoods, schools, and 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 the broader sense of, of a, a loss of togetherness as Americans. I mean, I think that more and more Americans are, are looking around and they're saying, what is it that holds us together? And this is why we've had so much controversy around the flag and the people want to stand together as a country and they're tired of being divided uh, by you know this that we don't agree on, that that we don't agree on. I'm called a bigot for that. I'm called a racist for this. They we want to stand together and and stand the things that we love together. And so I I think that that those core dynamics those are going to change. It doesn't matter who's president. I mean, and I suggest to you that nobody's going to get to be president or be one for very long if he or she or whomever doesn't recognize these core things because this is the reality of today. These are the great challenges of our era, and these are the tasks that we have to address. Well, thank you so much for joining us, sir. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Big thank you to Senator Josh Hawley and his office for taking the time to sit down with us on Capitol Hill. As always, please rate us five stars and subscribe for future episodes. We'll see you next week.